Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 48. Very cool interview coming at you today. If you're an engineer and you listen to podcasts, then you'll likely be hearing a very familiar voice. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about how you can kind of create surprises and unexpected positive events in your career and your life. And I'm not talking about some manifestation technique. It's far simpler and way more basic than that. And you're probably already doing it. But you know how I like to throw these friendly reminders out for y'all. So to start, here's an idea that I like to bring up. It actually comes up in today's interview. It's traveling the world. The world seems like a huge place if you never leave your hometown. Even if your hometown is a place like New York or Los Angeles or Tokyo or, or wherever. But when you get out there and you see things and meet people, you realize the world is actually a small place. People and places will come up and intersect with each other all the time. Example, I once went from Boston to New York City for an AES convention, and I ran into a friend from the town I grew up in in North Carolina. Or here's another one. My wife and I had three people that don't know each other all recommend the same small restaurant in Florence, Italy, which we did not get into on our honeymoon, and I'm still not over it. If you get out there and go into the world, then you will experience things, and you'll see that the world is not as massive and unrelatable as it may seem you'll realize that it's your interests and your personality that end up being the common denominator in the experiences you have. Okay, so let's try to bring these ramblings to a point that relates to what this is supposed to be about. Here's the parallel I'm trying to draw. If you go and put yourself out there into your community, you will find that things will happen. It's the act of getting out there that allows unexpected things to find you. The same way that you can travel the world and run into a friend or find a restaurant, No travel, then no surprise experience. You just can't have these experiences by standing on the outside of the circle waiting for someone to invite you in. You've got to get in there and put your art, skills, and personality out into the world. I'll use myself as an example. The number of people that I have met and built relationships with over the last year and a half probably dwarfs the past 10 years of my life. I used to spend a lot of time on the outside looking in, waiting for that invitation. But why would that ever happen? Because if you've ever been a wallflower at a school dance, then you know you'll be standing there all night. It's the people on the dance floor that everybody wants to dance with. So when the pandemic era rolled in, I turned to the internet to look for community and network. I thought that I'd put myself out there and chat with some strangers, connect with people doing things I thought were cool, etc. And that simple act of putting myself out there has resulted in so many positives in both my life and my career. It's nearly uncountable. I've got new friends, 
I've had inspiring conversations, I've discovered new music, worked with some amazing artists, and I started a podcast, which basically multiplied the new friends and inspiring conversations aspect 10 times over. Now that I've experienced these random acts of goodness, we'll call them, that seem to float around when you get out there, I can look back at all the surprising opportunities that popped up along my career in the past. I can link all of them to something else, some act of meeting a person or going somewhere, doing something, etc. Nothing surprising and interesting ever happened that wasn't related to being out in the world and doing stuff. And I know this all sounds a bit like a strange pitch for networking, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about authentically putting yourself in situations that can trigger growth and opportunity. Things and communities that you are genuinely interested in. It's the act of putting yourself out there, like I've said 10 times in this intro, that will allow these unexpected events to find you. And this isn't all about you. For every surprise stranger that impacts your life for the positive, I guarantee that you'll be the same stranger to someone else. So in closing, you never know what life is going to throw at you. And you will continue to never know unless you get out there. Remember, nobody throws the ball to somebody that isn't playing. Today's guest is mixing and mastering engineer, drummer, and podcast host, Matt Boudreaux. Matt started his 35-year career in the music industry as a drummer, playing in bands signed to major labels. Inspired by studio experiences with producers like Joe Ciccarelli and Gil Norton, Matt knew that the rest of his journey would be on the other side of the glass. Since then, he's engineered, mixed, and mastered a ton of records, as well as owned and operated multiple studios. And we are not going to leave out mention of his hugely successful podcast, Working Class Audio, which skips over the flashy studio stories and gear talk and gets into the real-world nitty-gritty of having a career in audio. I highly recommend it, so definitely go check it out. So welcome to the show, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, Matt. How hey, are Travis. You? I'm great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm not going to lie. I feel intimidated. It's like a interviewer showdown, and you've done, what, <laughs> 345 episodes, and I've done, like, 42? <laughs> 300 more to go. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Man, it's uh, super impressive that you, I think, you've never missed a week. Is that what I saw in an interview? That's true. In almost seven years, I've never missed a, a, a deadline. That is impressive. That's, like, something I try to, like, you know, hammer into my listeners is, is commitment and like accountability and, you know, being the kind of person that'll make sure that you meet your own deadlines. Because I feel like meeting your own deadlines is harder than meeting somebody else's deadline. Yeah. I think because I've got, you know, a large amount of listeners and sponsors involved, there's, it's bigger than just me. So I feel, I guess, a responsibility to everybody to not screw it up. I guess that is true. Yeah. You have done what, five years. You do have a lot of people expecting there to be a show on Monday. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, but, like I say, almost seven years come October. Oh, yes, yeah, right. 2015, 2014 or something. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Very impressive. And, you know, like I said, when we chatted before, you know, your show has been an inspiration for kind of why I started a show. And I think the fact that it's about recording, but it's not not really about recording, I think is what separates you. And I think that's what people really love. And I kind of wanted to start our chat by, you know, going through your career leading up to the podcast and how that shaped the type of podcast you decided to make. Sure. Where do you want to start? Uh, well, let's start. Did you come from a musical family? You were a drummer. My dad had a mandolin in the closet, but my dad, you know, 
spent the early part of his career as an electrical engineer working, you know, in the world of defense. And my sister played piano. And my one of my older brothers, you know, wanted to play in bands, but never really was doing it serious. So I was influenced by music, definitely, with two older brothers, an older sister. Their musical habits definitely rained down on me a bit. So I, I think that my initial interest in music probably came from them. And then, um, so your drummer, you ended up in multiple bands in what is this the nineties that you were, you were playing in bands, signed bands? Yeah. You know, I grew up in Southern New Mexico and there was some friends of mine that had a punk band called Manson Family Christmas, MFC. <laughs> and the drummer, who is the brother of, of the singer, uh, quit the band or sold his drum set or I don't know, something happened and he ended up leaving the band. And ultimately a new band was formed called the Sextants, like the navigational instrument. And I joined. And at that point it was, okay, well, what are we going to do with this? And we ultimately said, well, let's move to San Francisco it was a coincidence because the singer's sister was moving back to um, moving back to the United States or moving back from Micronesia. That's what it was. She, her husband was in, I'm going down a long winded answer here. I know, but uh, the singer's sister was married to a guy who was in the EPA. They were living on the Island of Micronesia or the islands of Micronesia, I guess. And she was coming back to California to live. He wanted her to join the band, so he moved from Las Cruces, where we grew up in New Mexico, to Oakland and ultimately San Francisco. And so the guitar player and I followed him and said, well, let's just move the whole band out to San Francisco and go get a record deal. Like, okay, let's just like, go to the store like and no get some deal. bread, right? Let's just go get a record deal. And, of course, a lot of people were like, that'll never happen. You know, million and one chance. Nobody's, that's not going to happen. And of course, you know, within three years, being the stubborn guys that we were, it, it did happen. And that's amazing. Yeah, that was the first deal that was with a small label called Imago Records that was an independent label that was run by Terry Ellis of Chrysalis Records fame. So he already knew, you know, how the, the whole business worked. But ultimately, it was a kind of a, a poorly run situation, at least how they handled us. They had some great people on the label. There was Amy Mann, there was Henry Rollins, there was, oh, wow. um, uh, you know, other great bands on this label, but it just kind of, it just tanked. And ultimately we were dropped from the label. And then I was not fond of our manager at the time and, I thought he was derailing our whole situation. So I, I just gave the band an ultimatum. I said, either he goes or I go. And they said, well, we can't fire him. And I said, well, then I quit and I'm out of here. And I quit and I joined another band called Seven Day Diary. Steve Bowman, the drummer from the Counting Crows, was playing with them. And, and he came to me and he said, you're going to join the band, right? Because I need to go do the Counting Crows thing. And I said, well, yeah, I guess. I think that's the plan. So Steve left. I came in. We got a deal with Warner Brothers. Started with on Reprise, you know, which is a division of Warner Brothers. We made an EP with uh, Joe Ciccarelli. And then we made a record with Gil Norton on Warner Brothers. 
toured, and once again, management. You know, usually management's just, you got to have the right manager or it just screws everything up. I mean, some of these folks that manage us, really, really well-intentioned people, but they just, I don't know, personal issues start to cloud their vision and then it, they screw it all up. Along that, do you have any opinions on, you know, an engineer, producer, or an artist looking for a manager? Like, what what should they be looking for? Whew, that's a tough one. Um, I I haven't had any management of any type as an engineer, and I haven't been in, in a serious band since then that's had management. You know, I guess what you're looking for is you're looking for somebody who becomes part of the team, who ultimately is going to make decisions to further your career, but also, you know, keep in mind you as a person and not just use you to make them money. I mean, you know, yeah. everybody wants to make some money in the whole process and further the goals of the whole operation. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a crapshoot, but finding kind of proven people in the industry is something that's important, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, and you have to like, it takes a while to get to know somebody, especially when they're going to be like a collaborator or a partner like that. So it's very easy to, you know, walk down the wrong road with somebody too long and be like, wow, this was the wrong person for me. They just was not, not a good fit. But luckily, you know, people swap, people swap managers. <laughs> but you know, it's, I, I think it, it's kind of, um, it's important to find whether you're looking for a manager as an artist or you're looking for an engineer or a producer to work with. You know, everybody's got ego involved. Managers yeah. have ego, engineers, producers, artists. Everybody's got ego. But the whole thing is, is if you can come together as a team to accomplish something as a goal without you know, screwing the other person up in this, that situation. I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but I think it's just, it's a, it's a team sport at the end of yeah. the day. You know, I'm sure yeah. like, you know, the Olympics is on right, you know, at this current time as we record this, the Tokyo Olympics. And, you know, you watch the coaches who are with those athletes and you, you got to ask yourself, you know, what's that relationship like? What, what are those coaches bringing to the table? They're bringing, you know, teamwork. Simone Biles is, you know, manager, I'm sure, or not manager, or coach, rather, isn't there for their own glory. They're, they're kind of in it to be part of a bigger thing. So, oh, yeah. So back to music and, and that whole business, you would hope that anybody involved in a situation is trying to become part of a bigger thing behind an artist, of course, because... You know, you're just, you're part of the team. You're not the front face of it all. Yeah. Well, and, you know, back to the the Olympics analogy, that coach doesn't really have much to say to somebody with the talent of Simone Biles. The he, he or she has to be there to support that person and make sure that everybody's better together. She doesn't need them to tell her how to do a flip. <laughs> She's got that covered. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, but they can they can be the one to say... Yeah, you're doing it right, but you're kind of swinging to one side or the other, and that's going to cost you points. So mm. maybe think yeah. about this. So in essence, you know, they are producers, you know, in one shape or the other. So yeah, I, I think they are important for sure because I, I don't think that an athlete on that level can go 
to, you know, Tokyo on their own and just be like, I got this. There's just too much pressure. <laughs> you need you need a team of people around you to help. Yes, uh, you totally. Well, and like, yeah, like you said, music career is the same. It's like you got you to gotta grow together and support everybody and, and you got to go up together. And I find, I don't know, you, you, might, you might see this as well. Like, I love that groups of people seem to come up in their careers together. We've, already, we've tangented hard here. Um, but, you know, like A&R a guys come up and they were interning with people that were runners at studios. And, you know, as people get promoted, they all kind of come up together. And that, that goes for managers. It goes for everybody. That's what like a kid should be looking for is like they're, they're people that they're all going to have their moment and they're going to rise up with. And I think that's kind of the cool part about a music career adventure thing, you know? Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. So we'll backtrack to back to your story there. <laughs> Um, so I know that you were inspired by some of your studio experiences to get away from the drums and get into the studio. Were there like specific moments where you were like, man, this is the thing. This is like what I want to do. Was there like an aha for you? You know, while I was, <clears throat> excuse me, while I was very inspired by, you know, Gil Norton, Joe Ciccarelli, uh, Larry Hirsch, you know, everybody along the way. I think really the the experience that was the aha moment was when a local San Francisco band came to me and said, hey, we want you to produce our record that we're going to do. We want to put out a CD. And, you know, you've been doing this. You know how it works. And I was like, yeah, I, I do. You're right. <laughs> and I had an interest in recording. So I jumped in and I said, all right, here's how we're going to do it. Because I was taking all of my experiences then I learned from those guys and applied it, you know, pre-production, tracking, overdubbing, mixing, the whole thing. I knew the process. So I just yeah. jumped in with these guys and dragged some ADATs to a rehearsal space, record them remotely, and then take those tapes back to a studio, overdub, mix it together, you know, all hands on the board, and go from there. And that experience and then seeing the product in a record store, that lit my brain on fire. I was like, this is a way bigger dopamine rush than playing the drums. Like seeing that, we worked on that together. That's great. Which is bizarre because, you know, it's, you know, when you're the drummer in the band, you work on a project, your record shows up in the store. Well, at least it did then. And you saw it, but... I don't know. It was, it was different. I think it was because I could contribute in a different way than I would as a drummer. Yeah. And through the whole process as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was just the act of recording and mixing and overdubbing and being in the studio and having that camaraderie and really being able to, being that point person on the technical side of things, being able to help shape the the dynamic in the room a little more. Whereas a drummer in a band, you know, you're not necessary. You can contribute and you're not really going to influence too much in, unless it's uh, from a negative perspective and, you know, being a, <laughs> being a person in the room that nobody wants to be around. I mean, you could be a positive person, but a producer and engineer really is that connection between the music getting to you know, the media the, or the medium that you're recording on. So you can really have a, a pivotal role 
that I think everybody kind of looks up to and, and it's, it's just a different dynamic. And I think that that whole process, all of that combined, that lit the fire and that made me go, drums, whatever. <laughs> you know. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. It's a, totally. So then when like when did you start opening your own studios? Like how fast did you you dive into this all? Well, as the bands were either off tour or getting kicked off the labels and, you know, I was trying to bring in some money. I was working at, there was a couple pro audio shops in San Francisco. There was audio images and there's kind of a lineage there. There's a group of guys that came out of audio images that created a new company called Cutting Edge Audio. And I worked at Audio Images in two iterations. And the first time I was there, all the cutting edge audio guys, sales guys were there as employees as well. You know, these are kind of in the days when ADATs are around, digital multitracks were kind of like the new hot thing and analog recorders were still there and very much a part of everything. But this was kind of a new thing. Mackie boards were kind of breaking the, the barrier price-wise to the barrier to entry, or we're kind of upping the game a bit from, you know, previous quarter-inch eight tracks or uh, one-inch, uh, one-inch sixteen tra- or not one-inch sixteen tracks, but uh, half-inch sixteen, and you know all the Fostex and Tascam machines. So yeah. I worked there for a period of time in a warehouse position. You know, you're basically you're shipping and receiving. You know, it's not the most glamorous thing, but it kind of keeps you you know, in a place that's got good energy. And then I went back out on tour and quit. And then I ended up coming back. And yeah, it was a couple stints at Audio Images, uh, t- a bit of time at Cutting Edge Audio. And while I was at Cutting Edge, working for some great people who were very demanding because they were taking care of their clients. And they had some huge clients, you know, Metallica, Skywalker, uh, or Lucasfilm, Uh, Pixar, The Grateful Dead. I mean, it was like, it was a cutting edge service to big time clientele. And it was not the most fun place for me to work in the long term. In the short term, it was great. Loved my bosses. But eventually I was not, I was not happy there. And my wife at one point said to me, you're miserable. Like you come home, you're just, you're drag." you should quit your job and take this recording thing that you're doing at nighttime and on the side and run with it. And so I did. And I started to just book time at a local studio with some friends. Uh, you know, when I, when I say with some friends, some friends of mine own the studio and I would just book time there and, you know, they would get their cut. I would build, build the band, my cut. And it just started to snowball. Eventually I built a small, mix room upstairs that was available and started to pay a regular amount of rent. So how soon after it was like, 
first, I did the first record in 94, did, you know, worked on some records in between. And I think probably by 97, 98, I think that's about the time I made that jump. If I'm, if memory serves correctly, because I know that I got my first pro tools rig in 1998 or 97, maybe. And that's when I was, you know, I was, you know, in deep because I had spent yeah. some money on this, took out a loan, right? was paying monthly on this Pro Tools rig for this, you know, Mac that would be laughable now and this Pro Tools rig that I think would, you know, look pretty funny gooey-wise oh, today. Oh, it's pretty crazy. 98, that'd be like, was that even, was that a Mix Plus or was that before Mix Plus? That was Plus? before Mix Plus. That was Pro Tools 3. It was... um you know, a card-based system like, like you know, like an HDX system, but it was early days. Sample rates were only 44.1 and 48. It was only 16-bit. Yeah. The hard drive had to be connected to the Pro Tools card, one or the main Pro Tools card in the system, one of them. And, um, yeah, it was, um, I had a single interface. I remember that. I think it was an 888. And I just got to know it. Yeah, just worked it to death and eventually, you know, went to a Mix Plus and then got the thing that came after that. I can't remember what, what that was. And I went through about three systems, each oh, time wow. going back to the same bank, talking to this woman. Hey, Wendy, want to get another system? Uh, okay, how much do you need? Need this much? Okay, great. You know, there's a stipulation. Well, we'll call it a stipulation of being an engineer where you have to keep up with the technology and the technology is always changing. And it is so challenging, I think, for people that are trying to get a foothold because they end up in the situation that you were, you were in. I mean, I've had, I had an HD2 rig. I had an HD native rig. I still have Pro Tools HD, but I don't use their interfaces. You're always constantly, you know, by the time you pay that thing off, it's time for the next one. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, well, I will counter that and say you don't have to keep up because I've definitely, I know some people that will, they'll, they'll stick to an old rig for a long time. I know people that were holding on to ADATs for a long time and begrudgingly went to Pro Tools. Uh, some, you know, still, you know, nope, got to do it on 2-inch 24, not going to get that Pro Tools thing. Yeah. And then eventually yeah. I think the world starts to, uh, go in a different direction. Like, like you're the person standing there with either the old rig that won't open the new version of Pro Tools or you're the holdout like that thinks that DA88s or ADATs are still a valid thing and, you know, the world's coming to you with Pro Tools sessions. And so part of my upgrade had to do with um, not only wanting to keep up, but also simply out of curiosity and, and simply wanting to the next thing. So yeah, it wasn't just completely driven by what the market was demanding. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess that's like good product design. You know, it's like I look at the latest version of Pro Tools, which I'm, I'm on. But, you know, if I, was, if I was like 16 months back or something like that, I would be super jealous of some of the stuff I can do right now. You know? And you're like, oh, I need that. I need that thing, you know? Yeah, and I was really lucky. I mean, I I had industry connections early on that I had people that would help me, you know, people at Digidesign at that time 
who I knew through Cutting Edge, working at a pro audio dealer, that would help me get employee discounts. Oh, nice. You know, nice. and then, you know, I got help with plugins, you know, because Colin McDowell of McDSP, Colin and I went to high school together. Oh, wow. And I ran into him at an, at an AES one year, and I was like, Colin, what are you doing here? Colin and I, like, would, like, before the Sextants, the, the band I was in uh, first, before we left Las Cruces, Colin's band, Obsidian, would play on the same stages at New Mexico State. And so then, like, leaving that very small pond, if you will, or tide pool, and moving on to the big ocean of the Bay Area, so to speak, yeah. and then running into Colin there was like, what are you doing in, in this place? Like, that, how strange to see somebody I know from my little hometown. And he was like, oh, my wife and I started this company, McDSP. We do these plugins. And I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, let me help you out. That's awesome. So it's really good. You know, it's, you know, you talk to so many people on your podcast and, you know, I'm sure you go to all the trade shows and, and have traveled prior to, you know, um, the pandemic. But, Something that I always like to bring up on the show whenever it makes sense is is how small the world is if you leave where you're from or if you're willing to go out in the world, you realize how it shrinks. The more places you go, the more people you know, you find them in the weirdest places. And it's really, really amazing. It's like inspiring to run into somebody random somewhere that you should never have run into them. Yeah, I mean, there's always great adventure to be had outside of your hometown, for sure. Yeah, And yeah. In regards to the pro audio industry, it's, it's, how's this for a quote? It's hugely small. <laughs> it's, it, it really is crazy. You gotta be, you gotta be cool, you know, because it's a small world and you don't want to piss somebody off that's gonna be in your way later down the road because we all know each other. The degrees of separation in the pro audio world once you start to like spend some years in it, it's really small. And I mean, I've met so tiny. I've met people who, you know, they'll, or they'll say to me, How do you not know this person? The two of you, like, there's very few degrees <laughs> of separation there. How, how have you not met that person before? Let's go meet them right now, you know, like on the trade show floor or something. But yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it is super small. And, you know, people that are like just getting out of college and they're, they're just getting their feet wet. It's just really important to remember that you're going to encounter all these people again, or you're going to encounter their best friend, you know? <laughs> you are. And I'll, I'll even go as far as to say that the pro audio world is like uh, another version of high school, you know? <laughs> there's different factions and cliques, and there's, you know, one or two people that you probably don't, you know, get along with the best you can. So... But, you know, that's the beauty of, of being an adult and growing older is you just, you mature and you just kind of let certain uh, childish things go at some point. Uh, hopefully, you know, little beefs you may have had with somebody that you met like 15 or 20 years ago that, you know, you right. hear them talk now and they, and it rattles a nerve like, oh, that, that dude said something to me funny, you know, 20 years ago. It's like, you, you kind of get over that stuff. Yeah. You're just like, yeah, yeah whatever. Well, and people change too, you know? Yeah, people change. Yeah. People are always, always evolving for, for better or for worse. Um, where, let's see, where were we on your journey? I, I don't know. I keep derailing your conversation here. No, it's good. It's good. Let's jump forward a little bit. 
because there's a lot of things about your podcast that I want to talk about. So let's just go. Let's go in there. You go there. <laughs> what was the inspiration? Like it's it's 2014. Podcasts are they're newish, right? They're not like kind of people are people are doing them, but they're not like common conversation topics. Um, what was the inspiration for starting your show? The inspiration was my own perceived failures in my last studio experience. I eventually took over a former Bill Putnam built studio in San Francisco. And it just, it didn't turn out like I thought it would turn out. It was at the top of the financial collapse, you know, June of 07, I think is when I opened and I was not equipped to handle it. Really. There just wasn't enough work. I was spending and doing all the wrong things and all, you know, spending money in places I shouldn't have been spending money in. Number one, I came into the, to this room that I knew had kind of, I knew the, the live room was awesome and some great records had been done there. But the control room I knew had a history of being a little funky. And I was, I think, a little too open to the suggestion from some friends of mine that the control room be gutted and redone. And I went for it. I gutted it and redid it at uh, the cost of running up a Home Depot credit card to the farthest I could go. And not really thinking, do I have the money to pay for this? No. Do I have gigs lined up to pay for this? No. I just wasn't thinking in the future. I was thinking in the moment. And I was... You know, all the stuff I preach about on Working Class Audio comes from my experience of not doing any of that and screwing it up in a big time, big time way. So I was not saving money. I was barely paying the rent. In fact, I was bouncing checks to the landlord on a semi-regular basis. I was putting my building partner, uh, mastering engineer, Michael Romanowski, in an awkward spot by doing that. You know, he was doing great. You know, he had clients, he was ro rolling with his business and I was back there just not doing as well as I, I could have been doing had I just, had I just moved in, ran, you know, maybe some new cable and put up some new lights, maybe painted a little, painted things in the control room. Had I started out with a little more humble perspective on the whole thing, I think I would have been financially better off. I took a deep dive and I almost drowned. And so come, you know, 2000, I don't know, mid 2012 or maybe close to the end of 2012, I knew the lease was coming up for renewal. And I came to Michael and I just said, I've created a disastrous situation for myself here and at home because of my decision making. And I, and I can't renew this lease and I need your help getting out. And he said, okay, let's do it. Let's figure it out. I don't want your family to break up as a result. I, I would, you know, we need to take care of this. So we actually got um, one of my former bosses at Cutting Edge Audio to take my place. And he stepped in. He gutted the control room again and redid it <laughs> and went through his own thing with that. That's a whole nother story. But I got out. And so by 2012, yeah, because this was at the end of 2011. So January 1st, 2012, I was... Here at my house, I had all my gear here. I had returned everything I borrowed from people. And I was just like, okay, what do I do? 
How's this going to work? You know, it took a while to kind of get, to kind of mentally recover from that. Cause I was like, I got my ass kicked. That's what it was like. I was like, it's like I went to a fight and got my ass kicked and I was just sitting there kind of going, okay, I need to figure this out. By 2014, I was like, I, I had gone through all the thought processes of, okay, I had a mind, big mindset change really. And so yeah. I said, okay, I need to figure this out more. I need to convey what I'm going through and think thinking about. And I started a blog. I started working class audio as a blog, but really didn't like the the writing aspect of it. So what a lot of people don't know about my time as a working as as a podcaster from working class audio is that in 2005, I had a studio in Emeryville, California. And I had been listening to God, former MTV VJ, whose name is spacing, so I'm spacing out on Adam. God, I can't remember his name. He's got a podcast now called No Agenda. His name will come to me or it won't. His name is Adam. He worked at MTV. He um, had a podcast. I started to listen to this new thing, podcasting. And I decided I would do a podcast. And in fact, I still have clippings from a paper of that some local paper did an article on me. I did what was called the Broken Radio Podcast. And it was, you know, I probably did it for like six or eight episodes, maybe 10 episodes. Okay. And got my feet wet in that, tried it, and was like, eh, whatever. And I stopped doing it. But it was such a new thing in 2005, 2006. And then... I was like, oh, right, that podcast thing. I should do a podcast again. And that's what I did. I just started calling up friends and saying, hey, do you want to be on this thing? I'm going to talk about this. And I called up, you know, some of my more high-profile friends like Vance Powell and Andrew Sheps, and they totally jumped in and, and were willing to help and become part of it. And then I got some sponsors, called up, you know, some, you know, once again, people you meet along the way said, here's what I'm doing. Hey, we're in. Great. What can we do? How does this work? I was like, I don't know. Let's figure it out. <laughs> That's, it's, it's always good when uh, your sponsor and your sponsoree are figuring it out at the same time. Okay. I didn't realize that you knew Vance and Andrew because I was looking at your early episodes, you know, to see like, who'd you start out with? Uh, and I had a question for you that's kind of, it's going to be a question about podcasting for you, but I think it's going to apply to other people in a different way. As the show was growing and you were reaching out to people you didn't know uh, and going for more high profile guests, was there like a fear of no or like a fear of rejection that you had to fight with in that like initial period of like going for the big showboat guests? Um, I don't think so. I mean, obviously I had a fear of people saying no, but I mean, that's the worst they could do. Right. Uh, exactly. I mean, people, I still have people tell me no. I had a, a guy I reached out to the other day. I thought it would be a no brainer, but he said, no, I'm not interested. And I was like, oh, okay, no problem. You know, I still like and respect what he does, but he didn't want to do it. So I was like, well, if he doesn't want to do it, there's no point in having him on. <laughs> it's really, it's, it, it's a matter of kind of having no fear. You just got to like call people up and say, or email them and ask. And I think in the early days, people were like, oh, sure, no big deal. You know, it's not like I'm doing a Time Magazine article or, you know, or a 
whatever, a, an article in, in a high-profile magazine that everybody's going to read. I think it was kind of small-time fry, small fry kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people said yes. And also, it, it kind of snowballs, too. When they see, oh, you got Vance and you got Andrew and, oh, those guys are cool. I'll do it. And then it just it continually builds. Yeah. Then you get people who uh, are fans of the show, who've been on the show, who then kind of reach out on your behalf. And case in point, uh, my friend Justin Perkins, mastering engineer, Justin had been on the show, and then one day he emails me, and he says, hey, um, would you be interested in having Butch Vig on the show? I was like, uh, well, of course, Justin. Yeah, I would love to have Butch Vig. And, he, and the reply was, great, because he'd love to be on. Awesome. And I was like, what? Butch Vig wants to be on my show? That's crazy. So it's when you know it's working. Well, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, the reason I ask is I think a lot of people, a lot of people avoid asking a very simple question to whatever a colleague or a coworker or somebody they don't know that can really, you know, benefit everybody just because they're afraid to not get an answer or get a no. And, you know, something that I brought up on the show that somebody told to me that I just feel like is such a good piece of advice is if you're, you're thinking about reaching out to somebody, the worst thing, like you said, what's the worst thing they're going to do? They're going to say no. But then if you flip it around and you become that other person and somebody reaches out to you, it's, it's like humbling. Like I, if somebody said, hey, man, I want to reconnect or, hey, do you want to be on my show or, hey, do you want to work my record? The first thing that comes to me is, Oh, that's, they thought of me. That's so nice. Like you're excited to hear from a stranger sometimes. And I think that's what like kids need to remember is like, if you're going after a gig, like they might be honored to hear from you and they might also say no. And it doesn't matter. Your life's not over. (laughs) I've told this story on other podcasts before, but I think probably one of the most intimidating moments I had was, uh, involving Eddie Kramer. And I was connected to him through a mutual friend and basically wound up on the phone with Eddie. And Eddie was like, hey, how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I'm great. I just was trying to see if I could get you to be a guest on my podcast. And then he kind of got really serious. And he's like, well, who's been on your podcast? And that moment I was like shaking in my boots kind of, you know, scenario. And I just, I went for the big guns and I just said, Al Schmidt. And he was like, Oh, I love Al. And he goes, okay, let's get, get your calendar out. Let's figure this out. And that, and then that broke the ice. That was was like, that was the moment that this is, it was kind of an example of, and I'll try, I swear I'll try not to derail us again, but long story short, (laughs) relationships matter, you know? And it started with this, you know, I do this podcast I develop a fan in Steve Jenowick, who works at Capital. Steve and I become friends. Steve, because he he starts communicating with me, and then he says, hey, you want to have Al on? I was like, absolutely. So I had Steve and Al on, and then I can then go to Eddie Kramer and say, Al Schmidt's been on, and then that just clears the path. Yeah. Relationships do matter, and it goes all the way back to how small this business is, like we were talking about earlier. It's, you know, everybody knows everybody. So you got to be, got to be a good person. You do. You really do. Kind of along those lines. I, w- I was going to say this at the end. I have to tell people about the first time that we met because I think it's very telling of the type of person that you are. And I sent you an email 
cold email to a stranger. And I said, hey, man, I just started a podcast. I love your podcast. Do you have like a tip? And you responded almost immediately. And you were like, let's do a Zoom. And we chatted for like an hour. Now, hopefully you don't get bombarded with emails and, and have to talk to a lot of people. <laughs> but um, I just, I think everybody needs to take any, take like just use that as an example. Like that's just sharing knowledge. And I will tell you the number of times that I have said, Matt Boudreau from Working Class Audio is like the nicest person ever. He did this for me. He didn't have to. It's like uncountable. I'm like, check out his show. Listen to this. You know, have you heard this? And those things go a long way in a small business. You know, that's like, you know, Steve and Al and Eddie are all tied together. You know, I think part of it too is just a feeling of uh, mortality, really, for me. <laughs> I, I Honestly, you know, I, I joke about it. In fact, I, I mention it. I think if you go back over my show over the last six or so years, the many times I have mentioned, you know, my death in the future, knowing that none of us gets out of here alive, right? So I think because I know that, you know, my dad, my dad is now 92. And I know that his death is coming in the next one to 10 years easily. And I think that that causes me to reflect on my own age and where I'm at and how much time I may or may not have. And I just don't want to waste my time trying to be a dick to people. You know, I'm going to reach out and be nice and helpful as I can. And some people, some people have a, a sense of entitlement and kind of a, you know, I can kind of see through them a bit and I try to avoid those people. But when somebody comes at me like you did with a genuine question, I'm like, number one, I hate writing. So I'm going to try to just get you on a video call because I like seeing people face to face and seeing who I'm, I'm dealing with. And if I can get you in a video call and help you out, great. And if you, yeah. if, and you know, I'm not doing it for the greater, uh, you know, benefit of humanity. I'm just doing it because I want to make sure I get you the information you need to make a great show. So we have great content out there. And then, you know, I have another friend out there. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's the, my favorite part of doing the, doing my podcast. And I'm sure you would say the same thing is I've reconnected with people that I haven't talked to in a decade, you know, and I've met new people and just, just making new music friends, you know? Yeah. To me, this and bringing it back to, you know, pro audio and the small world of things. It's just like, you know, if people like you and they can hang out with you without feeling like you're trying to sell them something or pressure them or do something to get them to do something for whatever selfish reasons a person may have, I think that they see that you're a genuine person and then they see, oh, you actually can do some things that I need you for in this situation. And when gigs come up, you know, people contact you and say, I got the perfect gig for you. Because people like to refer others. They like to genuinely help others. And if they have an ace in their pocket to go, oh, you need a guy to mix your record or master your record? Oh, okay, I got a guy. Oh, you're in the Bay Area? Boom, call Matt. He'll, yeah. he'll take care of you because he's taking care of me or done this for me. Now, mm -hmm. Travis, I'm not going to lie to you. I have been a dick to, you know, some people in my life. I've made some mistakes about how I've handled myself. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell you I've been a saint all my life. You know, I've had some people write me, not over the course of the podcast, but in the past, I've had some uh, people who felt like I spoke to them in a way that was really insulting and they let me know it. And I kind of had to 
you know, go, Oh, I guess that's not how you do that. But you know, you got to make those mistakes and learn from it and course correct. Yeah. Well, you know, it's reflection, I think is something that comes with age and you learn to like, look back at what you've done. As you get further down in your career, you're able to look back and, and see the choices that you made that were good or bad, you know, like you did with the studio, knowing that that was, that was a road that was not going to end where, where you wanted it to end. So a lot of people, you know, they won't course correct. They won't reflect back and be like, man, what have I done? I think that comes with age. Like when you're a kid, you make mistakes, but you don't realize they're mistakes until 10 years later. And it's, it's good to be able to make mistakes. And then, as I said, course correct, because as you know, you're going to run into situations in the future. And if you haven't learned your lesson, you won't be able to spot the potential problems ahead. So like, you know, everything I went through there, that studio and overspending and overdoing everything, I'm applying some of those lessons to my new, you know, adventure into diving into Dolby Atmos. Mm. That's going to cost some money. Rather than making those same mistakes that I made in the past with overspending and not being thoughtful about it, I'm taking those financial lessons and applying them to this new situation. It's like, okay, well, you can't do that until you sell that to pay for this. And you're not going to go out of pocket for this. You're going to, you're going to basically do, you know, what many of us are calling horse trading. You know, it's like, I'm going to take this gear, sell it and get this gear. Right. And that's how I'm going to pay for all of that. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, or, you know, if it was 2007, I would have said, well, the work will come. I'll just put it all on a credit card right now. But I'm not doing that because yeah. I know better. No, I'm, I'm thinking about going down the same road. So you're, you're speaking to me right now. I've got the, the angel and the devil on my shoulder of, how do you, how do you want to pay for it? You want to pay for it like this? You want to pay for it like this? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, since we were kind, of, we're kind of talking business, and uh, you know, it comes up on your show a lot that as a creative or an engineer, like you have to understand finances and you have to understand business because that's the way the world works. Whether you're a creative and you, you want to dodge it is, is unrelated. The world works this way. Do you have any thoughts on why creatives kind of refuse to learn this stuff? And B, do you have any tips for people on how to learn about business and finance? I think creatives take pride in their creativity and the the fact that they think a little different than the average, you know, person. The average person who gets a day job and does things in a traditional manner. And there's, you know, there's no crime in that. I think the trouble comes up when they refuse to realize that they're not always the smartest, most clever person in the room and that there's just some common sense day-to-day -day things that if you live in the Western world, uh, whether you subscribe to capitalism or not, uh, it's a fact of life. So... <laughs> and it is the music business. And yeah, I, I, I know some people are going to say, oh, well, you know, that's selling out. It's just like, really? Come on. Nah. Get over that. You know, if you want to go and like just play in the street or play in your basement, fine. But if you want to participate in the music business, you have to, as a creative, no matter what part of it you're in, you need to be business aware. 
You need to be financially aware so that you don't sabotage yourself or the people around you financially. Because if you do, you're going to force yourself into some situations where you're making decisions out of desperation. I've talked about that on the podcast. It's like, if you kind of insulate yourself financially, and I'm not saying you have to get like crazy rich or anything, but I mean, if you just cover your expenses and have a little cushion in the bank, it gives you a runway to make decisions with a little more thought behind those decisions. A little more, uh, you could be a little more calculated. You could turn people down. No, that's not a gig for me. But if you're up against the wall financially because you refuse to become financially uh, intelligent, and I'm not saying you've got to be a master of Wall Street. I certainly am not. But just master the basics of money. Then if, if you do that, you'll protect yourself. If you don't, you're going, to be, you're going to be making stupid decisions. You're going to take gigs you don't want to take that could lead to a number of things, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I have a, um, uh, an assistant who, you know, we were talking about invoicing and like, you know, he's fresh out of college. He didn't have an in invoice. I was like, send me an invoice for what you did. And he's like, oh, well, what do I do? I'm like, here, let's go through all this, right? And he, and he said to me one day, he was like, man, I'm so disappointed that I didn't learn how to like bill for a job or that I, I graduated from, you know, college with, without understanding my taxes. Do you think that, this is not really a music question, this is just a society question. Do you think that education fails us a little bit in this manner, that you can graduate from high school or, or college and not understand how to balance your own books? Totally. I think you have to be um, an advocate for yourself. The resources are out there to, yeah. to, to, to take advantage of, you know, teaching yourself. I'll tell you something that I, I've, I, I think only my wife knows, and that is, you know, I moved out to San Francisco September 6th, 1988. So I got out here and for a number of years until I was about maybe 20, yeah. So for a couple of years, I would get my paycheck and wasn't familiar with the banking system at all to the point where I worked for the Fillmore, Bill Graham's, you know, the, the famous Fillmore. I worked there. I'd take my check that I would get and I would go around the corner to the check cashing facility, which took a percentage of the check to cash the check. And then I would have my cash. And I look back on that and I just go... What was, like, who was that guy? Who, who does that, right? So fast forward, like, uh, a few crappy jobs later, and I'm working at Time Life Libraries, right? I had been fired with seven other people from Guitar Center, got a job at Time Life Libraries, <laughs> and this is in the days of, like, cold calling people to sell them book series, right? And I was oh one God. of those guys. And there was this, this, uh, this woman there that I was working with who saw what I was doing and saw that I was taking my checks to a check cashing place. And she was like, are you crazy? Yeah, let me show you. You've got to open a bank account. I'm going to take you down to Wells Fargo and you're going to open a bank account. You cannot keep doing this. This was like a, a coworker of mine at the time. I can't even think of this woman's name now. And she just was like appalled at my financial behavior. And I 
began, I think, you know, at quite a late age, the process of becoming financially aware. And even then, I mean, that, I don't think I've really become financially aware until 2012 when I finally got out of my, <laughs> my damn studio. These are a couple random, couple random thoughts of maybe how podcasting might parallel being an independent musician or releasing your own music. You and I both know that podcasts have statistics the same way that songs have streams and YouTube videos have plays. Do you have any advice to like the, the, like the young creator, just in any music, video, whatever, who's like obsessed with just like checking the release immediately and like swearing by the numbers? You know, I think it's, I'll bring it back around to a financial thing. You don't want to invest in the stock market to go check the stock price every day. You want to invest for the <laughs> long term. So let's bring it back to music. Create your thing. Get it out there. If you're in charge of marketing it, market it to the best of your ability. Let everybody know it's out there. And review the numbers every couple months. Don't waste your time getting obsessed about the numbers. Do what's right for the project. You know, be creative. Do your thing. Get out of your own way. Make it the best it can be. If you're so focused on the numbers, I think you're kind of, you're you're not focused on the right thing is what I feel. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you something like, you know, I will go in and check. I'll probably check the numbers about once a month. What's going on with the downloads. And I don't know if you noticed this, but you know, if you check at least like that once a month, every couple months, you'll start to notice trends. Well, I started to notice a huge dip, like almost a 20% dip. And I was like, something's going on. I don't know what it is. And I looked at all the services and I thought, okay, well, there's not a, I don't see a problem there. I'm out, you know, everywhere that I thought I was. Well, I got my answer today because I subscribe to a newsletter called Pod News, which if you don't, I would subscribe to it because it's brilliant. I get it daily. And I got word okay. today that there was a bug with Apple Podcasts. And they just fixed it. And it caused a 20% dip in everybody's numbers. And I was like, there's the problem. I knew it wasn't just me. It was Apple. I was so mad. I was just like, Ugh. but it's out of your control. But, yeah, you know, I just, I looked at it as, okay, well, the numbers are down. I need to do a better job of the show. What do I need to do? Yeah. That, was it a couple months ago? It's been happening over June and July. Ah. Uh, and they oh, just I they just so, fixed it in a new 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 fix. I feel so much better about myself now. Don't you? <laughs> because I saw the gnarliest dip. I had like my best month ever and then it was just like it's like everybody stopped listening. It was blown away. Yeah. Well, you could spread that news far and wide. Thanks Apple. It was their fault. I'm glad I asked that question. Wow. <laughs> But yeah, you know, people people get so stuck. Like I work with so many like newer artists and, you know, Spotify particularly is tough with that, you know, less than a thousand thing. And then they got rid of less than a thousand and just replaced it with nothing as if like that doesn't tell people that it's still less than a thousand. Like it's psychologically better to have blankness there. But, you know, I it, people get tied up in it. And I think they need to ignore it and they need to look at 
the growth trend. Because if you're trying to start a career or you're trying to start a new venture, it's the long game. You know, that you have to be invested in making music for the long term. You're not going to be Billie Eilish on song one. Not even song two. Uh, you know what I think it is, too? And I don't know if it's generational or not, because I think, you know, I'm Generation X, so I'm sure my generation does it as well. In the age of social media, we're used to posting something and we want, you know, instant gratification. How many people like my post, right? Mm -hmm. I just put, you know, and I just posted like five minutes ago and I'm refreshing and refreshing and refreshing. I think people are doing that with their releases. I think they're expecting that same you know, instant gratification. And will they give it to you? Well, if you, I don't know if you release music yourself in any form, but if you're Spotify for artists, that first like week, you have real time numbers to torture yourself with. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know. It's, it's the curse. You know, it's the curse of, like you said, the, the instant gratification that has come from social media. I think it's, I'm just also getting to an age where, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to do stuff and some of it I'll publicize and some of it I won't, but I'm not going to sit there and drive myself crazy with these, these numbers. I'm just going to do stuff. And whether yeah. or not I have the approval of people to do it or not, I don't really care. I'm just going to hunker down and do what I think is the right thing to do for whatever project I'm working on or whatever creative venture I'm working on. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to go crazy like that. But that, I think yeah. part of that comes with age. You get to a point where you just don't give a shit. You're like, you don't like it? Whatever. <laughs> I don't care. That came, up, that came up a couple episodes ago. But, you know, I, I think about how you said, you know, you started your show because of the, the issues that you ran into, you know, across your career and, and choices you made. That's kind of like where my show came from is I was chasing what I thought people would see as success for so long, you know, and I was trying to fit into a mold. And then I met my wife and I got a little bit older and I changed my approach and my mindset. And like, like you said, you don't care. You do what you want. I feel more successful whether I am or not is, you know, arguable, but I'm happier. And it's because like you said, what happiness is as you get older, it, it, it changes, you know? It does change, and I don't know. I mean, I could I could beat this topic to death, but <laughs> really, I think social media is just uh, it it it's like fire. It can keep you warm or it can burn you up. And mm. what you do with it, you know, you don't have to like jump into the fire. You can stand on the outside and go, "Ooh, that's nice. That's kind of warm." And you could use that analogy, of course, with a number of things. <laughs> But I'm going to use it with social media. So I, I back off of social media for political things. Believe me, I watch the news sometimes or see a headline and I lose my mind. And I'm just like, okay, you're not going to change the world with some angry post that is, you know, politically targeting a particular individual or group of people or whatever. So just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm glad I didn't grow up with social media because I think I would have said some really stupid stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I don't want to sound, you know, like be old and crotchety, but it, I think it's definitely really shaped a couple generations. And, you know, I think that I'll probably 
raise my children to approach social media differently because I see what it's done for the last 20 years for the good and the bad. You know, it's not like it hasn't completely ruined the world, but it's definitely changed things for people. Yeah. So I've been ending the show with two questions. The first question, which we've kind of touched on a little bit, is was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Hmm. What success meant? I don't know if it was a conscious decision. I think it was just kind of a natural evolution of, you know, becoming older and not being so concerned with trying to please everybody. I, I think that, you know, in the early days, I was like, well, you got to have a studio and you got to, you know, you got to do as much work as you can. And I think by my act of diversifying everything financially in my life, meaning, you know, I get money f from a multitude of places that I've developed, whether that's the podcast, my audio ventures with mixing and mastering, or contract work I may do for a company. By doing that, I've done what I told you I think is the way to go, is I've given myself a little bit of a runway so that I can make those decisions that I think are in my best interest or my family's best interest because I'm not going, my bank account's, you know, got $10 in it and I've, you know, I've got to take this. I don't care if it's the worst gig in the world. I'm now like, yeah. okay, I got a little cushion and I'm not rich, but I don't have to take this crappy gig and or waste my time over here. Therefore... I'm going to focus my attention here. So success to me, I think what I learned is, and I'm, and I'm realizing it as I'm telling you this, success to me is freedom, is autonomy to, to do with my time what I think I should be doing with my time and not being like beholden to anybody to, you know, do anything for them when I don't really think it's necessary. Now, that's not to say that I don't take on responsibilities and commitments where I am accountable for showing up and doing work for people. It just means that I've carefully chosen when and where I do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think freedom is, you know, I think everybody's ultimate dream, especially people that work for themselves, because it's when you work for yourself that you get stuck in that rabbit race of like, I have to take every gig because I'm the only one doing the work, you know? And so freedom is, is huge. And, and I think that's, that's the penultimate goal. Something you said about the financial stability, you know, the other thing it lets you do is it lets you value your time the way you want to value it. Because if you, if you're not financially sound, then you can't, like you said, turn down a bad gig. But you also can't decide whether something's worth your time. Like when you think about what your hourly is going to be when you're done. Is it like, do I want to mix this record for $10 an hour or do I want to go to the beach with my family? You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a key thing. You know, I have some crazy, you know, offers sometimes to do records that, you know, people are like with ridiculous budgets. Not, and when I say ridiculous, ridiculously low, <laughs> you know, right. and you hear what the description is and you're like, what? I'm not doing that. You know, I just, I, I think what I do is I have a, I have a keen sense of when I think a project is really going to be, you know, it's not, not that I don't want to take on challenging projects, but I don't want to take on projects where people are going to act like amateurs. Mm, and yeah. I have a keen sense of knowing when to avoid that. 
and I don't know how I hear somebody's uh, voice or their 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 pitch. Hey, we're doing this thing, blah 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 blah. And if my spidey sense, if you will, uh, or if if I feel a disturbance in the force, whatever analogy you want to use, if something you know hits me in the wrong way, I'm like, this project's gonna suck. I'm not doing this. And I'll just turn it down flat out. And the other thing too is, is it, it, you know, I know I keep harping on it, but if you're in a strong position to say no, then when people say, well, what's, what's your rate? What's your day rate? What's your, what's your hourly, you know, what's this going to cost? You can quote the rate that you think you're worth without fear yeah. that they're going to say no, because if they say no, it wasn't the right project. If I said, well, okay, I need X amount of dollars and they come back and say, well, our budget's a little tight. Do you think we could have, could we, could you meet me in between at this rate? I think I would be more inclined to say, okay, cool. But if, but if their gut reaction is, whoa, that's a lot of money. And then I'm like, okay, red flag. Dodge a bullet. See ya. Yeah, it's true. It's, you have to, you have to understand your worth before you can defend it, you know, and it takes time to understand that. So God, it certainly does. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And it can be, I don't, th I don't think there is anything more challenging in the business world than somebody saying, how much is it going to be? And you're just staring at them and you're like, what number? Is this the high number? Is this the low number? Do I give them this number? That's why if you understand like what you believe you're worth, like you said, you can just spit out the number. You don't have to overthink it. You're like, this is what I do it for. Yeah. You need to feel like when you're working on a project, because projects are going to get challenging. The person in front of you that you're talking to, you may think that it's always going to be wine and roses, but there's going to be moments when it's not. And you got to be able to be in the middle of a heated project if it gets that way and know that, okay, it's cool. I'm being financially compensated <laughs> here. This project is cool. Yeah, it's rough right now, but I'm going to, I'm going to press on. But if you've negotiated a, a bad rate for yourself and you're miserable, you're just going to be like, why did I sign up for this? <laughs> you know, this is not yes. worth it. <laughs> yes, that, that happens far, far too often in our business. But you know what people in music don't do a lot of the times because they're like, they're just so on board with the scarcity mindset that like every gig is the last gig that will ever come across the table is most people won't stop working with the client that underpays them and tortures them. And I'm not talking about any of my clients in particular, if you're listening, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you think that the last, the last gig you're ever going to have is the one you're doing, you'll never step away from the ones that bring you all of your frustration. What is that? You know, that 80% of the 80, 20 rule, the 80, 20 rule. Right. So I don't know. People just have to be willing to do that at some point in your career. You know, it's, it has to happen. I think as, um, as audio professionals, we got to learn to have faith in what we do. And, you know, don't treat anybody, don't, don't, don't try to screw them, be honest with them, be transparent. But if they, if they can't, if they've got some screwed up thing in their life that causes them to act out and, you know, treat you unfairly or, or, or demean you in any way, they don't value you. And if they don't value you now, imagine what happens if they get some money coming their way. They are certainly not going to value you. So 
if you're in that kind of a situation, step away. There's other gigs out there, you know? There are. That's an abusive relationship and you should get out. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And there are other gigs out there. That's what everybody needs to remember is there are other gigs. There are other gigs. It's not over. And you know, Travis, I mean, I talk about diversification till I'm blue in the face. Look, if you can supplement your income by doing other types of audio gigs, believe me, if you venture a little bit into the corporate world in any way, shape, or form, not only does it pay really well, but the audio jobs become incredibly simplistic. It's bizarre. I don't understand it. The, the time that you spend and the tasks that you do become crazy simple. And they're just so happy that somebody intelligent is handling it and making things sound good. The money flows better. It really does. Yeah, it does. But, you know, by doing those kind of gigs, you can then pick the bands that you want to work with that are cool, that have smaller budgets where you can sacrifice a little bit and you can get involved in the places you want to be involved. Yeah, it allows you to chase your passions a little bit more. Yeah. You know, and you, yeah. Go yeah. edit a corporate podcast to make some money and then, you know, come back to the cool band with no money and, you know, that's where you can you can make your sacrifices and, and jump in and have your, your foot in both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And to bring it full circle, when you do those favors for the indie band, you know, like we said, it's a small music business and people are going to remember that. Um, so, yeah, it's back to the beginning of our conversation. You become part of the team and your agenda is to help shine a light on that artist because you're not financially worried about what's happening in that moment because you've, yeah. you've diversified in other areas. So you can take a hit on this one. True. Okay. So now we have, We've made it to the final question, um, which is how I've, I've ended every show. And it is, what is your current biggest goal that you're able to share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? My big goal right now is turning my room into a Dolby Atmos mix room. I've never been excited about surround formats ever until now. And I can only say that I think that it's the market power of Dolby and Avid and some of the other companies, PMC Speakers, Grace Design, um, some of these companies that are doing products to make Atmos happen, everybody's kind of pulling their weight, it seems. And so I think that, especially on the consumer side, which is going to drive it a lot. So I think that there's going to be some work. There's going to be some opportunities. And I'm not just talking about rehashing back catalog stuff, although that's, that's totally valid. Um, I think giving a band or an artist an opportunity to mix in a new format from the ground up is exciting to me. So it's taking a a long series of steps. For me, the steps I've been taking up to this point are doing some aesthetic changes. I did some uh, reclaimed wood on the back wall and the front wall. You can see the back wall as I'm looking at you. I've redone the electricity in here, isolated grounded circuits, you know, orange plugs, 20 amp circuits, as opposed to 15 amp. And uh, the next step is, um, well, the ne- I just took the next steps the other day. I ordered a new desk replacement and a change of racks. And uh, the next step from that is, what is the next step? What do I have to buy? <laughs> I have to, I have to, the next step is, getting some speakers in here that uh, selling, selling the speakers I have and bringing in the new speakers. 
So it's all a process that's probably with orders in place and knowing the timeline of waiting on certain products that I'm getting, I'm probably looking at two months, two and a half months out before I'm like firing it all up. Yeah, that's cool. I think Dolby's, I think it's exciting. I think it's a really interesting time. So I think it's it's dope that you're digging into that. Yeah, some people um, think it's complete garbage and it's just another surround sound format. And, you know, that may be the case. Uh, if I'm wrong, as I've said on my own show about this, I'll have some speakers to sell. But, yeah, you know, taking the chance and diving in, come on. Like, this is the time to dive in if you're going to do it. Exactly. And the things, you know, you said that ha an artist having the ability to to create something in a new format, there's no bar for what a good Atmos mix sounds like. There's no rules. And then your your passion for diversification. Like, we all know that AR and, and virtual reality and all of these things, these things are going to stick around. And you're not going to have virtual reality without something like Dolby Atmos. So you want to diversify into some other area? Maybe you could do some... Dolby Atmos for video games and maybe music won't work, but there's going to be a shit ton of work to do. You know, I just, like anything, when my, I listen to my gut a lot and I listen to my gut about doing a podcast and in the beginning, you know, there was no, there was no financial gain from it. It was, it was just me doing this thing. And after almost seven years and 345 episodes, it's opened so many doors and introduced me to so many people and fostered so many relationships, uh, you know, friendships, business relationships. And it all it's all because I took a chance on doing something. So once again, my gut is telling me to go down this Dolby Atmos path. Where it will take me, I don't know. But I don't think there's any uh, thing that I need to worry about from it because I'm handling it financially in the right way uh, for me. And so... Who knows what doors will open from all of it, you know? Yeah. New relationships will be forged and new opportunities will present themselves. But you got to have a little bit of a, there, there's got to be a little bit of a risk involved. And in this case, the risk is minimal. It really is. It's, you know, worst case, like I said, I've got some speakers to sell. <laughs> Best case, uh, I have a steady uh, flow of work to do and new audio adventures to have. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what it's about having audio adventures. That's why we all got into this. Matt, this <laughs> has been uh, this has been a a great hang, dude. I really enjoyed this. I'll be listening to your voice on Monday. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so we won't we won't be apart for that long. Uh, but uh, I, I really appreciate you, you taking the time and, uh, and coming on the show and obviously for the advice that you gave me when I started. So My pleasure. And I'm really glad to see you uh, doing well. And it's, it's funny, you know, you sent me a uh, coffee cup. Oh, yes. And as a matter of fact, where is it? Yeah. I actually took the outer part of it and I keep it on my water bottle. So. Oh, my God. Yeah, because it helps me hold that water bottle. I still use the coffee <laughs> cup, but I see this all the time, every day. That's when I, so fun when I drink from this. So, thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, before we go, do you want to share websites for you and, and the podcast and anything for people? Absolutely. Workingclassaudio.com is the podcast. Uh, MattBoudreau.com is my audio-based website, 
and a new project that I'm working on, a new project that's out there and done. I'm not working on it anymore because it's done. Uh, I played drums on and mixed a new project called Domes of Energy. And Domes of Energy is essentially a Devo tribute recording that's guitar-based drums focused with very few keyboards, unlike, you know, Devo. And uh, (laughs) so if you just, you know, go to Apple Music or YouTube Music or whatever and type in Domes of Energy, you can find some of the the tracks that we've done. That's epic. Yeah. It's awesome. Were you... So we didn't talk about it, but you have uh, you have like a drum sample thing launching or or launched as well, right? Yeah, it's actually still available. Uh, it's called Mixing with Drum Samples. And I, I guess right now I'm just not really pushing it, but it's definitely out there and available. And even as a drummer, I, I advocate the use of drum samples because I find that it helps mixes. It helps mixes sound, you know, fantastic. It's not appropriate in every application, but even on my own drum tracks, I use drum samples, even when the drums are well recorded and, and time and effort was put into it. I just, I enjoy using them because I like what they bring to the table. So I share that passion in a, in a course called Mixing with Drum Samples. Awesome. Well, I will put, I'll put links to that in the show. And I, I definitely encourage, if, there, if there's anybody that listens to my show that has not listened to Working Class Audio, um, please go listen to Working Class Audio. You'll understand why I started a show. So Matt, thank you so much, man. Like I said, it was a great hang. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Travis. Appreciate it. That's a wrap for episode 48. Thanks to Matt Boudreau for coming on the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, you'll definitely enjoy his as well. So be sure to check out Working Class Audio wherever you listen to podcasts, but uh, please don't leave me behind. As usual, thanks so much for listening and a special thanks to our newest Patreon supporter. If you listen weekly, then you know who you are. And uh, we've only got a few more episodes left in the first year of the podcast. So that's crazy exciting. If you've been enjoying it, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. It all helps with the growth and the allure to future guests. And finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. There's a ton of great conversations going on over there. So don't miss out on those. And I'll see you next week.